0: Chapter 8 In the following week, Robin went home again. The clear weather of Easter had broken, and racing clouds thick as a pall sped across the sky that had been so blue and so cheerful. A wind screamed all day, now high, now low, shattering the tender flowers of spring, ruffling the derwent against its current by which he rode, and dashing spatters of rain now and again on his back tossing high and wide the branches under which he went, until the woods themselves became as a great melancholy organ, making sad music about him. When a mind is fluent and uncertain, there is no describing it. He thought he had come to a decision last week. He found that the decision was shattered as soon as made. He had talked to the priest, he had resisted Marjorie, and yet to neither of them had he put into formal words what it was that troubled him. He had asked questions about vocation, about the place that circumstance occupies in it, of the value of dispositions, fears, scruples, and resistance. He had, that is, fingered his wound, half uncovered it, and then covered it up again, tormented it, glanced at it, and then glanced aside. Yet the one thing he had not done was to probe it, not even to allow another to do so. His mind then was fluent and distracted. It formed images before him, which dissolved as soon as formed. It whirled in little eddies. It threw up obscuring foam. It ran clear one instant, and the next broke itself in rapids. He could neither ease it nor dam it altogether, and he did not know what to do. As he rode through Frogate, he saw a group of saddle-horses standing at the inn door, but thought nothing of it, till a man ran out of the door, still holding his pot, and saluted him, and he recognized him to be one of Mr. Babington's men. "'My master is within, sir,' he said. He bade me look out for you. Robin drew rein, and as he did so, Anthony, too, came out. "'Ah,' he said, "'I heard you would be coming this way. Will you come in? I have something to say to you.' Robin slipped off, leaving his mare in the hands of Anthony's man, since he himself was riding alone, with his valise strapped on behind. It was a little room, very trim and well kept, on the first floor to which his friend led him. Anthony shut the door carefully and came across to the settle by the window seat. Well, he said, I have bad news for you, my friend. Will you forgive me? I have seen your father and had words with him. Eh? I said nothing to you before, went on the other, sitting down beside him. I knew you would not have it so, but I went to see for myself, and to put a question or two. He is your father, but he has also been my friend. That gives me rights, you see. Tell me, said Robin heavily. It appeared that Anthony, who was a precise as well as an ardent young man, had had scruples about trusting to hearsay. Certainly it was rumored far and wide that the squire of Matstead had done as he had said he would do, and gone to church, but Mr. Anthony was one of those spirits who will always have things, as they say, from the fountainhead partly from instincts of justice, partly, no doubt, for the pleasure of making direct observations to the principal's concern. This was what he had done in this case. He had ridden, without a word to any, up to Matstead, and had demanded to be led to the squire, and there and then, refusing to sit down till he was answered, had put his question. There had been a scene. The squire had referred to puppies who wanted drowning, to young sparks and to such illustrative similes, and Anthony, in spite of his youthful years, had flared out about turncoats and lickspittles. There had been a very pretty ending, the squire had shouted for his servants, and Anthony for his, and the two parties had eyed one another, growling like dogs, until bloodshed seemed imminent. Then the visitor had himself solved the situation, by stalking out of the house from which the squire was proposing to flog him, mounting his horse, and with the last compliment or two, had ridden away. And here he was at Frogget on his return journey, having eaten there that dinner which no longer would be spread for him at Matstead. Robin sat silent till the tale was done, and at the end of it Anthony was striding about the room, aflame again with wrath, gesticulating and raging aloud. Then Robin spoke, holding up his hand for moderation. "'You will have the whole house here,' he said. "'Well, you have cooked my goose for me.' "'Bah! That was cooked at Passion Tide when you went to Booth's Edge. Do you think he'll ever have a papist in his house again?' "'Did he say so?' "'No, but he said enough about his young cub. Nonsense, man. Come back with me to Dethick. We'll find occupation enough.' "'Did he say he would not have me home again?' "'No,' bawled Anthony. "'I have told you he did not say so outright.' But he said enough to show he'd have no rebels, as he called them, in his Protestant house. Dick's to leave, did you hear that? Dick? Why, certainly. There was a to-do on Sunday, and Dick spoke his mind. He'll come to me, he says, if you have no service for him. Robin set his teeth. It seemed as if the pelting blows would never cease. Come with me to Dethick, said Anthony again. I tell you. Well? There'll be time enough to tell you when you come, but I promise you occupation enough. He paused as if he would say no more, and dared not. You must tell me more, said the lad slowly. What kind of occupation? Then Anthony did a queer thing. He first glanced at the door, and then went to it quickly and threw it open. The little lobby was empty. He went out, leaned over the stair, and called one of his men. Sit you there, he said, with the glorious nonchalance of a babington, and let no man by till I tell you. He came back, closed the door, bolted it, and then came across and sat down by his friend. Do you think the rest of us are doing nothing? he whispered. Why, I tell you that a dozen of us in Derbyshire. He broke off once more. I may not tell you, he said. I must ask leave first. A light began to glimmer before Robin's mind. The light broadened suddenly and intensely, and his whole soul leapt to meet it. Do you mean.? And then he too broke off, well knowing enough, though not all of, what was meant. It was quiet here within this room, in spite of the village outside. It was dinner time, and all were within doors or out at their affairs. And except for the stamp of a horse now and again, and the scream of the wind in the keyhole and between the windows, there was little to hear, and in the lad's soul was a tempest. He knew well enough now what his friend meant, though nothing of the details, and from the secrecy and excitement of the young man's manner he understood what the character of his dealings would likely be, and towards those dealings his whole nature leaped as a fish to the water. Was it possible that this way lay the escape from his own torment of conscience? Yet he must put a question first in honesty. "'Tell me this much,' he said in a low voice, Do you mean that this, this affair, will be against men's lives, or, or such as even a priest might engage in? Then the light of fanaticism leaped to the eyes of his friend, and his face brightened wonderfully. Did they observe the courtesies and forms of law? He snarled. Did Nelson die by God's law, or did Sherwood, those we know of? I will tell you this, he said, and no more, unless you pledge yourself to us, that we count it as warfare, in Christ's name, yes, but warfare for all that. There, then, lay the choice before this lad, and surely it was as hard a choice as ever a man had to make. On the one side lay such an excitement as he had never yet known, for Anthony was no merely mad fool, a path, too, that gave him hopes of Marjorie, that gave him an escape from home without any more ado, a task besides which he could tell himself honestly was, at least, for the cause that lay so near to Marjorie's heart and was beginning to lie near his own. And on the other there was open to him that against which he had fought now day after day in misery, a life that had no single attraction to the natural man in him, a life that meant the loss of Marjorie forever. The color died from his lips as he considered this. Surely all lay Anthony's way. Anthony was a gentleman like himself. He would do nothing that was not worthy of one. What he had said of warfare was surely sound logic. Were they not already at war? Had not the Queen declared it? And on the other side, nothing. Nothing, except that a voice within him on that other side cried louder and louder, it seemed in despair, This is the way, walk in it. Come, whispered Anthony again. Robin stood up. He made as if to speak. Then he silenced himself and began to walk to and fro in the little room. He could hear voices from the room beneath, Anthony's men, talking there no doubt. They might be his men too, at the lifting of a finger, they and Dick. There were the horses waiting without. He heard the jingle of a bit as one tossed his head. Those were the horses that would go back to Dethick and Derby, and, maybe, half over England. He walked to and fro half a dozen times without speaking, and, if he had but guessed it, he might have been comforted to know that his manhood flowed in upon him as a tide coming in over a flat beach. These instants added more years to him than as many months that had gone before. His boyhood was passing, since experience and conflict, whether an end in victory or defeat, give the years to a man far more than the passing of time. So in God's sight, Robin added many inches to the stature of his spirit in this little parlor of Froggit. Yet though he conquered then, he did not know that he conquered. He still believed, as he turned at last and faced his friend, that his mind was yet to make up, and his whisper was harsh and broken. "'I do not know,' he whispered. "'I must go home first.' Dick was waiting by the porter's lodge as the boy rode in and walked up beside him with his brown hand on the horse's shoulder. Robin could not say much, and besides, his confidence must be tied. "'So you are going?' he said softly. The man nodded. "'I met Mr. Babington.' You cannot do better, I think, than go to him. It was with a miserable heart that an hour or two later he came down to supper. His father was already at table, sitting grimly in his place. He made no sign of welcome or recognition as his son came in. During the meal itself this was of no great consequence, as silence was the custom, but the boy's heart sank yet further as, still without a word to him, the squire rose from table at the end and went as usual through the parlor door. He hesitated a moment before following. Then he grasped this courage and went after. All things were as usual there, the wine set out and the sweetmeats, and his father in his usual place, yet still there was silence. Robin began to meditate again, yet alert for a sign or a word. It was in this little room, he understood, that the dispute with Anthony had taken place a few hours before, and he looked round it, almost wondering that all seemed so peaceful. It was this room, too, that was associated with so much that was happy in his life, drawn out hours after supper, when his father was in genial moods, or when the company was there, company that would never come again, and laughter and gallant talk went round. There was the fire burning in the new stove, that which had so much excited him only a year or two ago, for it was then the first that he had ever seen. There was the table where he had written his little letter. There was Christ carrying his cross. So you have sent your friend to insult me now. Robin started. The voice was quiet enough, but full of suppressed force. I have not, sir. I met Mr. Babington at Froggitt on his way back. He told me. I am very sorry for it. And you talked with him at Padley too, no doubt? Yes, sir. His father suddenly wheeled round on him. Do you think I have no sense, then? Do you think I do not know what you and your friends speak of? Robin was silent. He was astonished how little afraid he was. His heart beat loud enough in his ears, yet he felt none of that helplessness that had fallen on him before when his father was angry. Certainly, he had added to his stature in the parlor at Frogget. The old man poured out a glass of wine and drank it. His face was flushed high, and he was using more words than usual. Well, sir, there are other affairs we must speak of, and then no more of them. I wish to know your meaning for the time to come. There must be no more fooling this way and that. I shall pay no fines for you, mark that. If you must stand on your own feet, stand on them. Now then. Do you mean, am I coming to church with you, sir? I mean, who is to pay your fines? Miss Marjorie? Robin set his teeth at the sneer. I have not yet been fined, sir. Now do you take me for a fool? Do you think they'll let you off? I was speaking. The old man stopped. Yes, sir. The other wheeled his face on him. If you will have it, he said. I was speaking to my two good friends who dined here on Sunday. I was plain with them, and they were plain with me. I shall not pay for my brat of a son, I said. Then he must pay for himself, said they, unless we lay him by the heels. Not in my house, I hope, I said, and they laughed at that. We were very merry together. Yes, sir. Good God, have I a fool for a son? I ask you again, who is it to pay? When will they demand it? Why, they may demand it next week, if they will. you were not at church on Sunday. I was not in Matstead, said the lad. And Mr. Barton will not, I think.' The old man struck the table suddenly and violently. I have dropped words enough, he cried. Where's the use of it? If you think they will let you alone, I tell you they will not. There are to be doings before Christmas at latest, and what then? Then Robin drew his breath sharply between his teeth, and knew that one more step had been passed, that had separated him from that which he feared. He had come just now, still hesitating. Still there had been passing through his mind hopes and ideas of what his father might do for him. He knew well enough that he would never pay the fines, amounting sometimes to as much as twenty pounds a month. But he had thought that perhaps his father would give him a sum of money and let him go to fend for himself, that he might help him even to a situation somewhere. And now Hope had died so utterly that he did not even dare speak of it, and he had said no to Anthony. He said to himself at least that he had meant no, in spite of his hesitation. All doors seemed closing, save that which terrified him. I have thought in my mind, he began, and stopped, for the terror of what was on his tongue grew suddenly upon him. Eh? Robin stood up. I must have time, sir, he cried, I must have time, do not press me too much. His father's eyes shone bright and wrathful. He beat on the table with his open hand, but the boy was too quick for him. I beg of you, sir, not to make me speak too soon. It may be that you would hate that I should speak more than my silence. His whole person was tense and magnetic, his face was paler than ever, and it seemed as if his father understood enough, at least, to make him hesitate. The two looked at one another, and it was the man's eyes that fell first. You may have till Pentecost, he said. It would be at about an hour before dawn that Robin awoke for perhaps the third or fourth time that night, for the conflict still roared within his soul and would give him no peace. And as he lay there, awake in an instant, staring up into the dark, once more weighing and balancing this and the other, swayed by enthusiasm at one moment, weighed down with melancholy the next, there came to him, distinct and clear through the still night, the sound of horses' hoofs, perhaps of three or four beasts, walking together. Now whether it was the ferment of his own soul, or the work of some interior influence, or indeed the very intimation of God himself, Robin never knew— though he inclined later to the last of these. Yet it remains as a fact that, when he heard that sound, so fierce was his curiosity to know who it was that rode abroad in company at such an hour, he threw off the blankets that covered him, went to his window, and threw it open. Further, when he had listened there a second or two, and had heard the sound cease and then break out again clearer and nearer, signifying that the party was riding through the village, his curiosity grew so intense that he turned from the window, snatched up and put on a few clothes, groping for them as well as he could in the dimness, and was presently speeding barefoot downstairs, telling himself in one breath that he was a fool, and in the next that he must reach the churchyard wall before the horses did. It was but a short run when he had come down into the court, by a little staircase that led from the men's rooms. The ground was soaking with the rains of yesterday, but he cared nothing for that and as the riding party turned up the little ascent that led beneath the churchyard, Robin on the other side of the wall was keeping between the tombstones to see and not be seen. It was within an hour of dawn, at that time when the sky begins to glimmer with rifts above the two horizons, showing light enough at least to distinguish faces. It was such a light as that in which he had seen the deer looking at him motionless as he rode home with Dick. Yet the three who now rode up towards him were so muffled about the faces that he feared he would not know them. They were men, all three of them, and he could make out valises strapped to the saddle of each, but, what seemed strange, they did not speak as they came, and it appeared as if they wished to make no more noise than was necessary, since one of them, when his horse set foot upon the cobblestones beside the gate, pulled him sharply off them. And then, just as they rounded the angle of the wall where the boy crouched peeping, the man that rode in the middle sighed as if with relief, and pulled the cloak that was about him, so that the collar fell from his face, and at the same time turned to his companion on his right and said something in a low voice. But the boy heard not a word, for he found himself staring at the thin-faced young priest from whom he had received holy communion at Padley. It was but for an instant, for the man to whom the priest spoke answered in the same low voice, and the other pulled his cloak again round his mouth. Yet the look was enough, the sight once more of this servant of God, setting out again upon his perilous travels, seen at such a moment when the boy's judgment hung in the balance, as he thought, this one single reminder of what a priest could do in these days of sorrow, and of what God called on him to do. The vision, for it was scarcely less, all things considered, of a life such as this, presented, so to say, in this single scene of a furtive and secret ride before dawn, leaving Padley soon after midnight, this, falling on a soul that already leaned that way, finished that for which Marjorie had prayed, and against which the lad himself had fought so fiercely. Half an hour later he stood by his father's bed, looking down on him without fear. "'Father,' he said, as the old man stared up at him through sleep-ridden eyes, "'I have come to give you my answer. It is that I must go to Rheims and be a priest.' Then he turned again and went out of the room without waiting.